Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Our current series is Everyday Saints, a study of the book of Ephesians, looking into what we have and who we are in Jesus. All right. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll uh, camp there this morning for a while as we, uh, as we get into it. But uh, as I adjust that for just a second, um, I want you just to kind of uh, give you guys a little, a little test and see how you would do on this one. Um, it's, not a, it's not a written test. In, in fact, it's not even an oral examination or anything like that. It's just kind of a, a thought process here. If I invited you to... Uh, to follow a list of, of some steps that I had for you to take. And I, I had kind of constructed this procedure for you to go through. And I said, what you're going to do is you're going to come up here, and day after day, you're going to sit in this table, this nicely uh, decorated table that I have arranged here. You're going to sit at this table, and you're going to eat what is in the bucket. And I said, that's, your, that's, your, that's your, your list. That's all you have to do is you're going to do those three things. In fact, I'll even let you know what is in the bucket. But, but your, your job is just to do these, and then do this, and then do this. You sit down, you open the bucket, and you eat what's in the bucket. And the next day, you sit down, you open the bucket, and you eat what's in the bucket. Now, how many of you would actually do that without knowing what's in the bucket? But knowing me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dave, right? Dave would. Uh, I'm not going to make you do that, and you're going to be thankful that I'm not going to make you do that, Dave. Because what if your job, what if your actual job was day after day to test dog food? All right, okay, so I said you, and I gave you the beneficial prepared meals, simmered chicken medley, and you had to test the chicken medley, okay? So you get out your spoon, right? You open it up, and you take a nice bite of the simmered chicken medley. There was a roasted chicken medley, but the simmered just sounded mm, so much better. Uh, it actually looks better than chef boyardee um but uh so you had to test the simmer check and medley and then you uh moved on to kind of you know cleanse your palate a bit you went with a busy roll hide roll hide get it see a nice little play on words there and you got to chew on that for a little bit and just test the flavor of that what's the consistency there you go dave you can kind of gnaw on that during the sermon if you need to what's the consistency what's the uh, texture like there's a nice little marrow looking thing on the inside i have no idea what that is without looking at the ingredients but you want to test how that plays with the actual roll hide does it work out well is this a good treat for dogs i mean dogs can't respond to a test for you they can't fill out those sorts of things so this is your job every day you're going to do that and then uh, for dessert i found at miller's a beef kneecap um there's a little bit of tendons and stuff on there. Um, Dave, you want this one too? <laughs> I won't give it to you because I want Heather to stay seated um, and not have to run out screaming too much. But what well, we got to do, at least get that out there though, right? So your job day after day is actually to test dog food. This is an actual job, believe it or not. Uh, you cannot just ask your dog how much they like it. You can maybe gauge their reaction, but you, um, it, it's an actual job. There is a guy named Mark Gooley. Mark Gooley, whose job is day after day to test dog food. Mr. Gooley sits down, and he samples different dog food. It's his living. 
It's how he makes his money. He tests everything from doggy treats to the chewy bones to a liver mixture sometimes. And he'll test this. And he says, his words, he says, um, I, I, you would, um, excuse me, I wouldn't just put anything in, in my mouth. Don't you, if you wouldn't, sorry, he says this, you wouldn't put anything in your mouth. Don't you dare expect your dog to eat it. Okay, that's what he says. And he once told an Australian newspaper, I'm looking for palatability. And I'm sure that's what your canine is looking for as well, palatability, right? I'm looking for palatability, Mr. Gooley says. I want it to be soft in the mouth, and I want it to be an enjoyable experience for the dog. The dog might not be able to tell me that tastes terrible, so I have to taste it for him. And so his job, day after day, is to go through the list of dog foods that need testing. And he tastes that, and chews on it, and gnaws on it, and figures it out. Is that palatable? Whatever that means, right? He says this, I don't know how to explain it. It's like being a mad scientist. Well, maybe one of those two things is definitely true. People look at me blankly and say, I just don't get it, but I couldn't do anything else. And Gooley goes on to say that this is essentially what he was made for. (laughs) And um, perhaps some of you are thinking about career changes Mark Gooley is a dog food taste tester. It's his identity. It's who he is, he says. And so for him to sit down and follow that list of to-do and go through that sampling of dog foods, whether it's beef kneecaps or simmered chicken, that's what Mr. Gooley does because that's who Mr. Gooley is. Now, for you, if I sat you down and I gave you the list of roll hide, simmered chicken, and beef kneecaps, most of you would not do it. You might be able to get through a a thing of that simmered chicken if it was warmed up, because honestly, if I just warmed it up and put it in front of you, most of you wouldn't know that that was dog food. But the beef kneecap's probably going to stop you. The roll hide, I don't know, it kind of looks like a taquito, but uh, you're going to sense that, especially if you knew what it was. right? You're not going to do this, because this is not who you are. This is certainly not who you were born to be, I don't think. Maybe some of you are rethinking your calling right now. And here's what happens, though, is if I just listed for you a bunch of duties and a bunch of responsibilities for you to do, and I just said, do it, just do it, the Nike slogan, just do it, many times that's not going to flow too easily, especially if those duties and responsibilities don't make sense. And very often what helps those things make sense is understanding our identity. And how Mr. Gooley can, can justify his Uh, his responsibilities and his duties of tasting and sampling dog food is because he says his identity is wrapped up in being a dog food taster. Mine is not, and so my, I I don't go around tasting dog food since I was like three or so. I stopped doing that after a while, right? Um, Why why would we ever do this, right? Well, it's wrapped up in our identity. And if I were just to give you a list of duties or responsibilities of what it means to follow Jesus, many would look at that list of of, of, of responsibilities, would look at that list of obedience and look at that list of things to do. And for some of you, it might even be right up there with eating dog food. Why would I want to do that? Some of the things that Jesus calls us to simply don't make sense if we don't understand our identity. We're going to work at this really hard this, this morning because I want you to understand why we do these things, why we call people to do these things. Because there are many, many things in what Christ calls us towards, what Scripture calls us towards, and what following Jesus is all about. There are many things that we would say, why would I ever choose that? Why would I ever choose that? And that's, we almost have the same reaction. In fact, if you look at this passage in Mark, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, you'll see a number of different commands in this 
chat in this uh, section here. It's just six verses here. But just scan through there, and you'll notice in verse 2, and we'll read this whole thing in just a second, but you'll notice in, in verse 2 that we're called to have humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so if I were to say, be humble, be gentle, be peaceful, be patient, our reaction to that is, why? Why? Why should I do those things? Is it just Jesus said to, and so I obey him? Or is there more to that? Why should I do that? Why should I be humble? Why should I be gentle? Why should I be patient? Those things honestly don't make sense sometimes. I mean, who, who, why is humility a virtue? We love when other people are humble, especially towards us, and they build us up and lessen themselves. But why would we ever be humble? Gentleness? Really? doesn't make sense, does it? We're not a gentle culture. We're not a gentle people. We don't know how to be gentle. We may not even know what the meaning of that word actually is. Patient, Paul calls us towards here. Be patient. And that may not even make sense towards us. Humility means putting others first. It flies in the face of the survival of the fittest mentality that we often see in our culture and in our sports and in our business practices. And we don't like it. We don't want to be humble. Humble? That's for Milwaukee Bucks and Detroit Lions fans, right? Not for us. Who wants to be humble? Humble's for losers, right? Humble's for the U.S. hockey team, not the Canadian hockey team. Humility. Humility is not a virtue, we usually think. Humility is what you do when you lose, and you try to lose gracefully. Gentleness? Gentleness, really? I mean, I know Jesus was gentle, whatever that meant. It says he was. Gentleness really means to keep your strength under control in order to serve others. We're called here to be gentle. We're called to be patient. We're called to wait, to bear with one another. Well, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? And if I just started listing out these things, be a humble people, be a gentle people, be a patient people, bear with one another, love one another, this sort of thing, be peaceful, unified, that list is not terribly attractive because it goes against something in our nature. We're not naturally called towards those things. That's not who we are naturally. Naturally, we're prideful. We're self-centered. We love to flaunt our achievements and dominate others verbally or physically sometimes. And so this sort of thing, this list that Paul creates here, makes no sense whatsoever on its own. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. That's for losers, right? Our base instincts fly in the face of this. And let me uh, illustrate this for a second. So um, on Fridays, I take my kids to school, and uh, I also take um, one other child with us. And uh, we have four, four children? Yeah, four children in the car. Uh, one of our kids is not old enough yet. And me, and we drive to school. And we have this game that we play in the car. It's awesome, right? It's a pretty sweet game. We look for yellow cars, right? We get a, one point if you find a yellow car. And if you call out yellow car and you show that you found a yellow car, you get one point and no one else gets that point. And once the engine stops, whoever has the most points wins. We also play you get a point for an Xterra because that's what I drive and somehow that became part of the game as well. And you get bonus points if you find a yellow Xterra. That one's worth three points. So it gets a little bit complicated in there and there was a lot of uh, confusion about the rules. But I think we have that firmly established now what the rules are. Yellow cars cannot include taxis, construction vehicles, or delivery trucks either. It has to be an actual commuter car, something 
something like that, not just something that people are putting ladders on. So there's a little bit of definition around this and some confusion, and you couldn't just join us too easily. We'd have to explain the rules of the game. Now, we have uh, children from the ages of about 5, I believe, to 11 in this car, playing the yellow car game, and it has become quite competitive over the last month. In fact, um, some of us are not too humble about this game when we win. Some of us, and I won't mention who, sing some Queen songs when we win. Um, that the other people in the car have no idea who they are, have what those songs are. But it, you know, at least one of us is up there singing, "We are the champions of the car, right? Of the yellow car game," and just lording it over and bragging on how great we are at spotting yellow cars, and Xterras, and the others are humbled. Now, guess who's happy? The one who won and is bragging and singing Queen songs, or the one who has been humbled? Now, it's me, right? I mean, I hope that doesn't the big reveal there, but it was me. I, I dominate this game for the most part when I'm paying attention. When I'm not paying attention, um, I can lose sometimes, and I lost yesterday twice, which was really, really frustrating. Um, but uh, that's, this is how we do it, right? It has developed into one of the most vicious, cutthroat identification car games in the history of commuting. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty... It's pretty we take it seriously. You guys laugh, but this yellow car game, you can ask my kids or myself or, uh, or anyone else who rides with us. This is a big deal. And when we start to look at some of the character qualities that Paul commands in us, we do not find them in my car during the yellow car game. There is no patience with those who misidentify colors because of their colorblindness. There is no gentleness with those who accidentally call out a Penske van. Those don't count, remember? There's no gentleness in that pointing out, though. It is loud and um, joined in chorus, usually by numerous young children, if something is misidentified. There is uh, no patience with those who fall behind in the score. If one little child has zero and one adult has 14, there is, there is no, there's no in, in, you know, the game does not include some kind of catch-up process where you just kind of, okay, we'll give you 12 to get you caught up. It is vicious and cutthroat, and that's how we tend to be, right? Now, we have fun with this, and it's a yellow card game, and there's no real prizes or anything like that. It's just kind of a fun thing, and we're goofing around. But this is life for many of us, right? We want to win. We want to come out on top. We want to show that we're superior. And so we look at the commands in Scripture like we see here, Humility, gentleness, patience, love, bearing with one another, unified. That just seems for losers, doesn't it? It just seems, that's, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't go against what we want to do. We may put that face on of humility, but usually when we're trying to be humble, there's, something, there's a different motivation underneath that even. And so we really struggle with this because we know that at our heart, we're something very different than what these commands call us to be. And so when Scripture gives us a to-do list of character qualities or characteristics like this one, if we don't understand our identity, if we don't understand who we are in Christ because of what Christ has done, we will fail. If I just tell you to do something, do these things, and I don't ground you firmly in who you are in Christ, you will fail. If I just tell you to be humble but I don't connect you to the humility and love of Jesus, you will fail at that. If I just tell you to love others, bear with one another, you may, able to do, may be able to do it for this afternoon or for this week, but you will fail unless you constantly connect 
your love towards what Jesus has done for you. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to work very, very hard at not letting us separate the actions of Christians, the duties of those who follow Jesus, from the action of what God has done in Christ Jesus. You cannot separate them. Christianity, following Jesus, is not just a list of to-dos. It is not just be humble because Jesus was humble, be gentle, be loving, be kind, all that kind of stuff. Christianity is understanding that at our core, our nature has been changed because of the work of Christ. Because God has called us, Christ has redeemed us, and the Spirit has sealed us. We have been saved, we have been redeemed, we have been changed. And these activities flow out of that. And if we disconnect that, we will fail at these activities. If we keep them connected, we're not going to be perfect at these activities, but it'll make sense. We'll we'll have a reason to be humble, to be gentle, to be um, patient, the things that Paul mentions here. So with that in mind, thinking through that connection, how important that is for whether your job is to test dog food or whether your calling is to follow Jesus in areas like humility, listen to the words that Paul speaks here. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is constantly reminding us that he's a prisoner here, that, uh, that his, his actions have led to his imprisonment. He, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You hear it there? Here's who you are. You've been called by God, so walk in a manner worthy of it. Don't just walk right. Don't just be moral good people. Understand that it's your calling. It's your identity. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Okay, it's just going to be a short text. We'll get to the, the, ne- the, uh, the following section next week. Um, but Paul here, there's certainly a to-do list, isn't there? He's got a list of virtues that he wants to see cultivated in the Ephesian Christians. He's got a list of things that those who follow Christ should put on. We should be these things. You should be humble. You should be patient. You should be kind, gentle. But he's also got another list in here. Doesn't he? You see the two lists? On the one hand, there's a list of humility, gentleness, patience, those sorts of things. And then later, into verse 4, there's another list. And it's, uh, it's a list of ones. There is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. And here's the situation that Paul's going to say. He's going to say, at your core... In terms of your identity, you have been rescued from a horrific life of enslavement. God, in his love, has reached down and rescued you. He has brought you into the house of the king. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter. He has raised you up as his own and given you everything his own children have, his own child has. He's brought you into his inheritance. And as you grow into a realization of what Christ has done for you, Paul's going to say, walk in a worthy manner. But it's not disconnected from the realization of who you are. The realization is the springboard for what you do. Okay. The trajectory of this passage, and and even the grammar of this passage, and how this passage is arranged by Paul, the trajectory of this passage points us towards the identity of God. 
Paul has this list of things that we should that should characterize us, the things that we should put on. But as he drives this verse in the section home, he's pointing us towards God. And the, the passage kind of culminates by showing us God. There's one God and Father of all who is, uh, as Paul says here, um, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the trajectory of this passage points us first and foremost towards God, not on our responsibilities. Paul wants us to even take our eyes off the to-do list for a moment and focus on who God is and what God has done. And then he's going to say, because of that, because of what Christ has done, because of that calling that you have been called, walk in a worthy manner. And that includes gentleness, and that includes humility, it includes unity in these sorts of things. But Paul is calling us first and foremost to not take our eyes off of Jesus, not take our eyes off of God, our Father, in this process. Listen, there's a, a massive difference between two different statements that I could make. On the one hand, I could say to you as a church or you as families or you as friends, be unified. And you, I could say, be unified. Be a united people. On the other hand, if I said you are unified, there's a huge difference. Right? There's a command and there's a statement of truth. This is what Paul is going. He wants us to understand the statement of truth and then maintain it, he says. You see how he, says, how he words that in this passage even. It, with, the, with the idea of unity in verse 3, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he's going to show that there is unity. There is one faith, one God, one baptism, one Spirit, one God and Father of all. We are unified under God, so maintain it, Paul is going to say. And you, hopefully you understand that difference between the command, be unified, and maintain that unity. You are established. You are brought into Christ. You are unified in Christ. Now, maintain that unity. You can almost think about this in terms of marriage, right? If uh, I, I've, I've sat at some of your weddings, and I've officiated at some of your weddings, and I have pronounced you as man and wife. And what I've done in that pronouncement is said, you are unified legally, under the church, under the state, under everything. You are a united couple now. You're one flesh. Now, I could say, go and try to maintain that, go ahead and try to, try to be united. But what I'm saying there is, what the pronouncement says is, you are un- united. You are united. And as marriage couples, if you've made that covenant with each other, you are united. There are times when you're not, very, you're not acting very unified, right? You may have weeks where you barely talk to each other. But you're still united. You're still united. And what Paul's going for in this passage is showing the church, you're united under Christ. Christ has brought you in, you who are far off, you who are in separate corners, ready to go at it. Christ has brought you together, not in... Not, in, not in, a, in, in enmity, but in love. You've been united in Christ. You are united. So, church, look around for just a second. I know this is cheesy when pastors do that, but do this. Look around, because you are united to these people sitting here. You're united. You're, you're part of the same body. There is one body here. Those are your brothers. Those are your sisters. Some of them you just met today. But God has brought this together. God in Christ has done something. He has brought us together, and we're united. This is our family. These are our people. This is what God has done. God calls, Christ redeems, and the Spirit seals, Paul has said. The church is formed, and now Paul is going to instruct us in the the last few chapters of Ephesians to live in a worthy manner. Not to earn our calling, not to earn our redemption, not to earn our sealing, but because we've been called, because we've been redeemed, because we've been sealed, 
Maintain it. Live like it, Paul is going to say. The gospel has results. For those who are dead are now alive. Those who, are far, who were far are now brought near. And if Christ is dwelling among us so that God's wisdom can be made known, we will walk in a worthy manner. You are these things, so be them, Paul says. And he gives us this list. It's, uh, it's not necessarily strictly an individual list, though. This is not things that you go and work on in your basement. This is not things that you go out to the wood shop and figure out on your own. This is not things that you can just go take a walk and figure out. The list that Paul has here is a very social list. The idea of a solitary Christian, the idea, to, the idea of a solitary follower of Jesus, just does not square with what, what, uh, what Scripture defines it. Um, and so he talks about humility. Humility is not just how you think of yourself, it's how you position yourself in relation to others. How, how do you, are you always posturing to receive accolades? Are you always posturing to be noticed more? Humility is a social virtue here, and Paul says in humility, think of others better than yourself. It's not just how you think of yourself. It's not just thinking of yourself less, it's thinking of uh, it's not just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Gentleness, then. Gentleness is not just how you treat your cat or your car. It's how you respond when someone attacks you. It's a social virtue. You can be a very gentle person yeah, individually. I mean, that's pretty easy sometimes. But put other sinful people with you, and it's hard to be gentle sometimes, right? Or often. It's very hard to be gentle. And Paul, Paul is pointing us towards this virtue again of gentleness. How do you respond when hurt by someone. Patience. Patience is not just something you do after placing your order and then wait quietly. It's how you listen to others, how you bear with one another. And Paul adds that, bearing with one another, taking up other people's burdens, walking along to other people in their hurt or in their joy. Bearing with one another in love means that you have to be with others. And then peacefully united under the truth, Paul says. It means you've been brought into something, into this truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and that connects disconnected people. When Jesus died and rose again, his victory created a new people. And as we place our faith in him, we're given new life. Our debt is paid. We are made right with God. And we are brought into this ragtag, seemingly mismatched collection of oddballs, screw-ups, and messy people called the church. And if you want a church that's uh, if you want a church that's full of perfect people, I would invite you to leave right now. Um, the gospel brings broken people together under one God and Father. But we are united, not because of how perfect we are. We are united because there is one God and Father of all, and we worship him. We are united, so be united. Christ was humble, gentle, and patient with us, so be humble, patient, and gentle. And in love, Jesus bore our sin on the cross, so bear with one another. We are united under these things. We are united under the work of Christ, so be united. Walk with each other. Bear with one another. Be humble. Give credit where credit is due. You were dead, Paul says earlier. You were dead. You didn't make yourself alive physically or spiritually, so give credit where credit is due. Give glory to God. Humility was despised in the ancient world. It was seen as something for slaves. And it's a virtue in the New Testament in a countercultural way. C.S. Lewis does say that humility is self-forgetfulness. It's not needing so much for our, not needing attention for ourselves. And he says that if you met a truly humble person, you would not be struck so much by their humility, you would be struck by how much they care about you. 
And you can only get there when you understand what Jesus has done. Otherwise, you will be jockeying for position because you'll think that you need to win. You need to have the attention. But if we understand what Christ has done, it leads us to be humble. Gentleness was often used to describe domestic animals, meek cattle, right, lowing in the stable and like we have in our songs. But gentleness means not asserting my rights. It's power under control. It's concerned about the other. And so at times we don't dominate most of the time. We, we defer. That's gentleness. Patience means that you have been given grace, and so you give it to others, including, this one's going to be tough for us, your children. Right? Patience is not easy when you have four kids, or three kids, or two kids, or one kid, or no kids. Patience is difficult, right? You ask anybody, what, do you, what are some of the things that you feel like God is work, wants you to work on? And usually patience comes up within three or four things, right? We all need to work on patience. And so we could go out there, and we could take that to-do list, and we could start gnawing at that bone of patience. But unless we understand our identity in Christ, it's a disconnect. We're trying to be patient, but we don't understand why. And Paul here, as he points us towards one God, one Father, one faith, one Lord, is pointing us towards Jesus' victory, Jesus' lordship, God's supremacy that gives us the power to be patient. Paul tells us to bear with one another in love, giving some activity to that patience. It's not just waiting, but it's walking with other people. Now, as I kind of walked through earlier, lest we think that this is weakness, G.K. Chesterton says this, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved, or humility has moved from the, uh, from the area of ambition. Modesty has, or humility has, been, has settled upon the, the, uh, the area of conviction. In other words, what, what Chesterton says is that we used to be humble about ambition, but now we are humble about our conviction. It was never meant to be this way, says Chesterton. A man was, was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert, himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. So we doubt the truth and assert ourselves where we used to doubt ourselves a bit, not be so confident in ourselves, but be confident in the truth of who God is and what God has done. And so now we assert ourselves. If you don't think we do that, look at social media. We are constantly asserting ourselves begging for likes and notice in social media circles. We assert ourselves, and we're not confident in the truth. Humility is not just being a doormat. Humility is standing firm in the truth, but not needing to promote ourselves. And Chesterton does a great job of explaining that. It's boldly confident in the truth, and Paul points us in that direction here, that we are peacefully united under the truth. We're humble about ourselves, but we're confident in the truth of who God is, and what we are supposed to do. And if I simply gave you these commands with a go get them, you may be guilted or pumped up, motivated enough to give it a shot, but you will fail unless you grasp the truth that this is who you are. This is who God created and redeemed you to be. And the truth then is follows in the last few verses of this section, that we're not united around guilt, or we're not united around just energy among ourselves, collective energy, like some kind of pep rally. We're united because God has made us one body under one spirit with one hope and one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. And we serve one God, we live under one God, we strive to act as one body to display the unity of our God. 
Theology is meant to unite. And so often in our circles, it divides. The central idea of this passage is calling. You look at it, it's repeated numerous times. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. But calling is not just a nudge or a desire or a distant cry beckoning us to come over. It's an inescapable identity. This is who you are, Paul says. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one God and Father of all. He has brought you together under the redeeming work of Christ and with the sealing work of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He has brought you together as a church, as a community, to bear with one another and live united. And Paul doesn't just say, be nice people. He says, God is doing something tremendous here. He has done something tremendous in Christ and in the church, God is doing something for his glory. So be united. Because you are united. It's not just a list of to-dos. Don't just go home and say, all right, father, you work on patience. Mother, you work on gentleness. Son, you work on uh, whatever, love. And daughter, take the rest of them. It's not that sort of thing. Paul's saying, this is who you are in Christ. This is what Jesus has done. Live like it. Understand it. Let it fuel you for mission and love. And we miss that so often. We think Christianity, we think following Jesus is just a list of to-dos. Be nice, humble people. And it's not. Jesus has saved us, transformed us. And we don't have to assert ourselves and dominate other people. We can defer and love other people because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, we are a changed new people, so live like it live like it. We're going to pray in response to that in just a minute, and I'm going to ask God to give us grace in this area, because we need it, don't we? This is not easy stuff, because we so often think we can either earn it, or we think it's impossible. But what Paul has done here is shown us that in the work of Christ, we don't have to earn it. Jesus has earned it for us, and it is possible, because we're just following him. We're just following with his power, and his strength, and his um, and, his, and under his authority. So we want to, we want to ask for God's help. We're going to sing a couple songs that remind us of the gospel, that remind us of what Jesus has done for us, and we're going to thank him in song for that. Every week here at DR, we offer communion at tables on either side here. We put out a, 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 the bread in the cup, and we invite you, if you know Jesus, during the next few songs to come forward, to take the bread, dip it into the cup, and receive that. Remember that. Remember that the bread represents Jesus' body, which was broken for you on the cross. Remember that the cup represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for you on the cross. And so as uh, we sing and as we celebrate any time over the next two songs, you may come up and receive that and thank God for that. For you, as you look at this passage, you might need to do some work and some prayer on your own. You might need just to be seated, be seated for a while and spend some time repenting and asking God for forgiveness. And then you can come up and do that as you remember his grace and mercy and forgiveness offered to you on the cross. And during this time, we'll also pass a plate. We, we want to connect our giving and our, 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 um, our generosity towards what Christ has done. And so because Christ has given us much, because we are united under Christ, we give in response. And if you're new here, if you're a guest here, if you give online, there's no obligation whatsoever. We're not trying to shame you into putting something into the basket. It's just an opportunity for us to remember that giving is an act of worship and is part of who we are as well. Because Christ has been generous to us, we want to be generous people as well. So, 
Let me pray. We're going to have the band come up, sing a few more songs, and then we'll celebrate through giving, through communion, through song, through our own prayers as we continue here. Father God, thank you for your triumph and thank you for your victory. Thank you that there is one God and Father of all and that in Christ he has redeemed us and made us new. God, we thank you for the work of the Spirit which brings us together in this crazy, messed up thing called the church. And Lord, as we seek to live together, help us to take these things into account. Help us to be humble and peaceful and gentle. Help us to bear with one another in love and help us to be united. But Lord, we cannot. We will fail on this quickly if we do this on our own strength. And so may we constantly run to the truth that there is one God and Father over all and that in Christ our Lord has come to save us. God, help us to remember that, receive that, Embrace that, celebrate that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.